back in the fur shed for episode 42 of the Trapping Today podcast. I'm your host, Jeremiah Wood, and thank you very much for tuning in. It's great to have you guys here. The Trapping Today podcast is brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com. Cots Brothers, that's Kyle and Kellen Cots. They have a great trapping supply company. They get a line of lures, and uh, you can get a whole bunch of stuff there. Get on the website, uh, sign up for their email newsletter, and you, you'll get uh, get email updates on different deals they have going. They have a rewards program where every dollar you spend, you get a point that saves you five cents. They all stack up pretty quick if you order a bunch of stuff. Uh, essentially, everything is, is 5% off through that rewards program, so pretty cool deal. Support Cots Brothers Lures. Thank them for supporting the Trapping Day podcast. Glad to be able to keep this coming to you every week. All right. So in this episode, I had a a couple of things I wanted to go over. Number one, I want to answer questions. And then second, we're going to get into a recent book that I read uh, about a sort of a wilderness Alaska wilderness lifestyle that involves uh, it's not completely about trapping but it uh, it is heavy trapping plays a heavy part in um, in that that entire story so first off what I want to do is listen is is answer listener questions Um, I have been a little bit lax in answering questions I get emails from several of you uh, that listen to the podcast and uh, I sometimes I'll try to answer your questions if I have a quick answer that I can get to you something that I know the answer to Um, I'll do that sometimes I get a little behind on my emails and I'm guilty of not getting that done right off so what I thought I'd do is I just went through uh, some recent emails and I just kind of wrote down a few of the questions from those emails that I thought we could go over. And I may have a good answer. I may have a terrible answer. I may rattle on about nothing. Uh, Who knows? I'm just going to go with them. So, all right. So an email from Luke. He had a couple of questions. One was, uh, it looks like he's, he's just getting started trapping. And he wanted to know, is uh, is it necessary to wax small foothold traps that are going to be used for drowning sets for muskrats? And the answer to that question is no. Um, in my opinion, there is no need to wax any traps that are going to be set in the water. I think most people would agree with that. So the reason that you uh, would wax your traps that are set on the land uh, there are a couple of different reasons, uh, but primarily to protect them from the weather, from rusting, because when they're sitting in the soil, there's a high tendency for any metal that's buried in the ground to want to rust. So the wax per- helps pre- prevent that rust. The wax also keeps the trap from kind of sticking into the ground uh, and and helps prevent it from freezing when you have freeze-thaw conditions. And also the wax uh, can can help that trap uh, to get 
make a quicker help the the jaws to kind of in 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 the uh, levers to come up out of the through the dirt a little bit quicker there's less friction um, between the steel on the trap and the dirt um, however the difference that the wax is going to make versus an unwaxed trap is probably pretty minimal. If you've got a good trap with some strong springs, you shouldn't have an issue with just using uh, something like Speed Dip or KBL Quick Dye or any one of those products. Uh, that that shouldn't be an issue. So, for anyway, for for your purposes, Luke, no, you don't you don't need to wax those. Um, just uh, I would I would. Probably make sure you uh, you at least dye them, just to uh, to keep them from rusting too bad from coming in and out of the water, and being in the water for a long period of time. Second question Luke had was, he he's preparing wax dirt, and he wanted to know if wax dirt needs to come from the area that you're trapping, or is it okay to just collect it from anywhere, and. I would say that you're not going to have any issues just uh, collecting that dirt from from wherever you can get it. As long as the dirt is dry and it's clean and when you go through the process of making wax dirt you you maintain that uh, that dirt in a clean state and you don't get any odor on it or anything you shouldn't have an issue. Now different people have different thoughts about the type of dirt you should look for as far as whether you know moving dirt to a different area the only thing that I could think of is maybe if you're like in the desert and you have like a really like reddish colored dirt and then you go into an area that's that's more traditional like a, a brown type of dirt you know if an animal's approaching your set and within the trap pattern there's all that reddish dirt and it's it looks different that might be something that's going to throw up a red flag for a coyote for instance so in that case you probably would want to blend that in but if there's no like stark differences I wouldn't worry about it at all the thing I would think about is what type of dirt you want to use and dirt can range from anywhere from like almost gravelly to silt clay uh, and, and anywhere in between so you need to decide what type of consistency you like to see your dirt for for the purposes of making wax dirt and it seems like a lot of people are going towards more of like a sandy type of uh, consistency for the dirt uh, that may uh, depend your preference for that may depend on how you prepare it some people are using like a cement mixer on a really super hot day or start a fire kind of underneath or near that cement mixer and they're just spinning that dirt and putting uh, flakes small like pieces of wax that's flaked off from from a block and mixing that in some people will put a tarp down on the ground on a 90 degree 90 100 degree day and spread that wax dirt in the sun all across the surface of that tarp and then they'll um, distribute that those flakes or pieces of broken up pieces of wax into that dirt and kind of mix it up but the sand seems to uh, the wax seems to ad adhere to the grains of sand a little better than it does to the stuff that's really fine 
and you might have a hard time getting that fully mixed. And the point of the wax dirt is to have enough of the wax covering the individual pieces uh, of of soil that uh, the the waterproofing is going to be effective. So just something to think about. I'm not an expert in wax dirt, but uh, I wouldn't worry about taking it from from a few different areas. All right, Garrett asked a very difficult question to answer. <laughs> so I'm going to just give a short answer. I'm not going to do it fully full justice, but how can we as trappers help educate and grow our base? So he's asking about, you know, getting young people in trapping, getting more people involved in, in understanding uh, about trapping. And what I'm going to talk about later on in this book that, that I had to go over is is kind of goes along those lines of of making the public more aware of trapping and us as trappers. I don't really know the answer of how we do that. I think that's a question we've asked forever and we never seem to we always talk about it, you know, you go to trapping conventions and people always complain that or or just lament that there are, aren't any young people look at all the gray hair in the audience and we can't get young people into trapping something that I don't if we had the answer to it we'd be doing something about it uh, it may be just a long slow climb of trying to get more people involved but you can expose someone to trapping as much as you want and if they if they don't have a propensity to be a trapper, if they just don't have that spark in them, uh, there's nothing you're gonna do to to make them a trapper. The interesting thing was what Cole mentioned in in the podcast a couple of episodes ago when we went to Neil Olson Trappers Weekend. He said he said if you know someone that has any interest, take him to a trapper convention or take him out trapping because he said the same thing that I said that both Cole and I uh, if you haven't heard that episode he's a friend of mine uh, from the area that has just gotten into trapping recently but both of us grew up and we really wanted to trap but we didn't know anybody who trapped so if we'd been around somebody uh, immediately we would have gotten into trapping and and then Noah who I up interviewed in the last episode or in that was in episode 40 I interviewed Noah Cole was in 39 it was kind of the same deal he wanted to trap his dad didn't trap he didn't have any friends who trapped he finally uh, was able to go out on the trap line with an old timer that lived nearby and uh, he was hooked so it's small maybe small uh, actions to get people who who already maybe have a propensity to want to trap let's make sure those guys are trappers okay so so that's the biggest thing if you if you interact with somebody and they are curious or you know maybe you talk trapping casually and they're really they latch on to it and they're interested in it then make that extra effort to to get them out as far as how we create more awareness as trappers overall in the general public um, I mean that's that's a very important that's an important question to try to answer I don't I don't know the answer to it I part of me initially thought that we 
you know, we we don't we should we might want to shy away from publicizing or talking a lot about a lot of things we do. Um, I know when I was starting trapping, I was Martin trapping, and I was in the grew up in this little town in the just I grew up in unorganized territory, population like twelve, and the nearest town was two hundred and didn't have anything. The nearest town with a store had eight hundred people, and that was that store had a was kind of a fur tagging station where they had tags from the state so you can go in and tag the fur that you need to get tagged and i remember my first year i was in there tagging martin and there's people like like old ladies that i grew up around and knew them all my life and they grew up in this little small town and the the whole town was hunting and fishing rural rural town and they're like, oh, that's so cruel. Why would you kill those animals? And my jaw just about hit the floor. Here I am, 16, 17-year-old kid, and I'm just so proud of these animals that I've worked so hard for, and and they're telling me I'm cruel to, to be killing these animals. Uh, that's something on a whole different level. And and it goes to what I, I'm going to talk about eventually. I, I want to do an episode on the different reality shows reality tv shows that have focused on trapping over the past few years that's a really interesting phenomenon to me because initially i thought that people the general public doesn't need to know what we do because they're going to hate it anyway but when when there were a couple of shows that came out on tv and people started seeing trappers in what we did as trappers, the reaction really wasn't that bad. It's just we had to get get ourselves in, out in front of those people. And a lot of it was the guys up in Alaska and northern Canada that were, were relying on trapping for a good part of their living. But it when, it when it actually showed what they were doing, how they were doing it, why they were doing it, and it put a person, put a face behind this whole trapping thing, I think it gave people a little more context because when they don't see us, they automatically think the worst. That is a a, a mean redneck that's torturing animals and beating his wife, and it, you know it's just it, they. If it's somebody that you see and you know, and it's a real person and they're a kind person, they have a good stable family life and they do great things in their community and they're out there harvesting fur it it gives a little bit different perspective on uh on what trapping is and and you know maybe helps that 80 percent of the public that doesn't have a strong opinion either way think you know what i saw that once on a youtube video or i saw i saw a guy on tv that was trapping and you know he was a pretty reasonable guy i I don't see a, a big problem with it. So I think, you know, just taking an opportunity, we as responsible trappers, taking an opportunity when, when it comes up to uh, to kind of be proud of the fact that we're trappers and, and let people know in, in the appropriate situations, uh, be it's okay to publicize that. So that's all the answer I have, Garrett. I, I hope that there are better ways 
<laughs> and if there are, I'm happy to share them if anyone has ideas. Ron was looking for locations for coyotes, and there are far better people from, than me to answer this question. Um, the What I look for with coyotes is I look for travel ways, and I look for intersections of travel ways. Uh, I know that's a simple answer, and you probably already know that, but that's the that's the best thing that that I can find is anytime you have a travel way that's is particularly on an edge edge of field and woods which we have a lot of here the edge of uh, harvested timber and mature timber the end of a logging road where a skitter trail major skitter trail comes in two logging roads that intersect uh, two farm roads that intersect a place where a farm road meets a railroad crossing uh, intersections of fence lines and roads all of those things that would cause animals to it, sort of have a better chance of animals being in that particular location and walking by where you make your set and then when you actually go to those places uh, use those places to look for sign and looking for sign is an art that I have not yet mastered I, I work on it from time to time I know some people that are very, very good at it, but uh, look for tracks, look for droppings, uh, look for game trails, things like that. And uh, if once you get the location and you get sign found on that location that you've confirmed it's been used, uh, then then the last thing is look at wind direction. Uh, make sure that you're always setting on the downwind side of, of where that travelway is going to be. And then look for salient features. Uh, Craig O'Gorman always talked about salient features. Uh, something that sticks out. An object that sticks out on the landscape. If there isn't one there, put one there. And uh, then from from there, uh, get creative in making your sets. Use what you know. Use what you learn from different trappers, trapping videos, demos, and so on. Uh, but that's how I find location. Uh, he also talked about fire ants. I don't have an answer on fire ants that, that apparently is a problem for you guys out in the south uh, getting in your bait as you, when you're making like baited dirt hole sets. The only thing that I could think of to deal with that is to use some sort of a liquid bait or, or use a lure without, without a bait. But if you're going to use a bait, uh, you're probably going to have to use some liquid. Funny thing, I actually had some uh, bait that I I was I made up a bunch of bait and some of it went bad on me. I preserved it in sodium benzoate, but I I was a little late on this stuff. I waited a little too long. I was I was so busy. Uh, by the time I got to it, it had gone just a little too far. And the sodium benzoate takes a few days to to really um, complete its work. Uh, so this stuff went bad, and I actually a lot of it liquefied, and I poured a bunch of it. I funneled it into some squirt bottles, and I'm going to try some of that liquid uh, nastiness <laughs> at, in some set locations in the future. But liquid bait might be something to uh, to think about. Uh, Ryan was asking about an, any opportunity to create a business to help create a better market for fur. This is a really tough one because... There really isn't a lot of opportunity out there right now. As you know from my book, uh, Fur Profit, Trapper's Guide to the Modern Fur Market, I give some ideas in there. 
but there's nothing like earth shattering that is going to open up this huge new business. Now, I did talk about the ladies up in the Yukon that have that Fur Reel company. They started, uh, it's kind of promoting locally trapped fur up there, but it's kind of a small company. I don't know that they're just a startup. I don't know that they've had any success yet. Uh, the other one is there's a lady that's making hand warmers up in uh, up in Canada. That is is becoming pretty popular, for, like using beaver fur for hand warmers, because the fur is extremely warm, and the people up like uh, a lot of the skiing, snowboarding type community. Uh, that's kind of the market they're targeting. They seem to be selling some. So that's exciting, but it's a very small market as well. Americans aren't wearing fur. I mean, that's to change that, we're going to have to change the culture. And <laughs> that that is a little bit of a tall order. So Russia and China and Korea are wearing fur. They don't have a lot of money right now. Americans just aren't wearing fur. It would be great if we could market some sort of a domestic product to to Americans. I don't see it at this point, but if we can if we can kind of turn the corner as we get to the animal damage issues, the the fact that trappers play an important role in wildlife management and reducing animal damage problems. And if we can eventually get to the point where people recognize trappers is playing that role and can connect that to hey if I buy fur I'm supporting these guys and that's still only going to be a very small segment of the American public but there was uh, there's a book that, that I, I, I listen to a lot of audio books and, and get into a lot of the business uh, and entrepreneurial type stuff and just things that make you think a little bit. There's a guy named Malcolm Gladwell who wrote a book. He's kind of a, a thought leader, modern thought leader. He wrote a book called The Tipping Point. And what he got at in The Tipping Point was the idea that uh, certain things trend for reasons that are very difficult on the surface to explain. Uh, he talked about a trend in people uh, wearing hush puppies, which was a type of, of shoe that was popular for a long time and then basically went just about went out of business. And then all of a sudden, some people in one part of New York started wearing them, and that went from a few hundred people to all of a sudden just multi-millions. It just became this huge fashion craze seemingly overnight and he talked about how uh, crime rates have changed in cities he talked about a number of different things that started from almost nothing to all of a sudden becoming this huge uh, huge overwhelming change overnight so who knows fur could be part of a tipping point in the future it may require a few key people to to really promote it and to start this kind of trend and it may take off I don't know but I always thought it was cool when you you look at those uh, a lot of the shows 
like The Last Alaskans, one of the reality shows that features trappers up in Alaska. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if people realized, you know, they've made a connection with these people that are trapping that fur. And if you could, if you knew you could purchase, by per, by buying a coat with Martin fur incorporated in that coat, you were supporting somebody's ability to live off the land in the remote wilds of Alaska. And you were you liked that idea and maybe you always wanted to go to Alaska but you never could. But in some way you could be a part of that by by wearing that. And other people see you wearing that and they start asking questions and other people are you know, that could be something pretty cool. Uh, I don't know how that translates into a business opportunity, uh, Ryan, but but some making some sort of a connection uh, with people beyond just the commodity of fur, the commodity fur coat or or fur pelt. I think that's that's the way the world is going, and and that's probably the only way that I can see a, a new business coming out of the the fur industry uh, at this point. And uh, I think that is a unique opportunity for wild fur, not, you know, it differentiating it from, from ranch fur as well. So, so for us wild fur trappers, that, that may be something to think about. It would take a very creative entrepreneur, someone who's very good at what they do and someone who worked very hard uh, to get that done, but, but who knows. And then finally, Chris, a while back, asked me about gear for winter water trapping. And boy, that one's that one's really tough. Um, I don't have any gear companies to ask for sponsorships or anything like that. I, honestly, uh, I, 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 I never really think about what I wear when I'm out there. And that's, that's kind of interesting. When Chris sent that email and asked me about it, I was like, Geez, I, I never even gave that a thought. You know what gear to purchase. It's just kind of. So I'm an ice fisherman. I I get out a lot in the winter time, and and I kind of wear similar gear to that. The difference with winter water trapping is, you're chipping a lot of ice, and you are, you're burning a lot of calories, and you're generating a lot of heat. So you're not going to stand around very long, uh, and, and and so you don't need you don't need to be dressed up too heavily uh, in relation to the you know the, what the temperature is outside. In fact, that can be a detriment to you. Uh, one of the things that I've learned over the years is uh, to dress in many many layers, all kinds of layers, and to have wool or polypropylene incorporated into those layers. And so, say we're in the dead of winter, um, what what I will typically wear is a base layer of like some, some nice th- thick long johns and a thick uh, polypro type shirt, like a, a th- I don't know, I call it like a thermal shirt, undershirt thermal underwear uh, pretty pretty well insulated stuff that's going to keep you pretty warm and then as far as pants I'm wearing 
uh, as thin of a wool pant as I can find. I've, I've worn a bunch of different wool pants, and what I would rather have is a, a thin wool pant in a, in a nice, thick, long john underwear underneath it, rather than have a thin long john in a thick wool pant, because the, the thick wool pants are really hard to move around in. I find they really restrict my walking, especially moving around on snowshoes. It's really a pain in the butt. So, so the thermal underwear, the thin wool pants. There's a a military surplus company out. I think it's somewhere in Nevada or Arizona or somewhere. I I, I couldn't find these thin wool pants. There, I think the ones I got were like Big Bill, was the brand, and but they had this special really thin version of them. Uh, and I had to call up and, and order over the phone through that, that military surplus company. Uh, and <clears throat> got a pair of them, really like them. They, they're, they're really awesome. I had an old, old pair from like, I don't know, 1940s. They're like original military. And those finally wore out on me, so I had to replace them. So I'm happy with those. As far as boots, uh, we wear thick, heavy boots. Uh, I don't. When I'm trapping through the ice, I don't wear waders uh, because because we you're typically your feet are not going to get wet. You probably want to have rubber at the bottom of your boots a little bit, uh, but they're not. You're not going to plan on getting wet. Everything's going to be on the ice. Uh, shirt uh, above above that thermal layer, I'm gonna have probably I'm gonna have probably three or four layers on top of that for my main torso I'm going to have a sort of a thin long sleeve shirt over top of my thermal underwear I'm going to have a fleece long sleeve fleece over that I may have like I've got oh someone a family member gave me this uh, this nice Sitka long sleeve hooded hooded sort of um it's not it's like it's not quite a sweatshirt but it's whatever it is it's wicked expensive and it, anything sitka is, is expensive and but it's just boy it, i've had it for years it it's really 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 nice and it's got a hood on it it's got it, it's really comfortable so i'll wear that i'll wear a fleece over that and then I'll probably, over top of that, I will have a down jacket. And and typically what it's going to be is like a, a a down coat with my raincoat layer over top of that just to uh, to cut the wind. And so that's what I'll come in on on a snowmobile or, or whatever. And as I get warm, I'll just start taking layers off. Usually when I'm, when I'm getting ready to cut the hole in the ice, I'm going to, I'm going to pull that uh, that down coat off. That's the first thing I do before I get started because I know I'm going to get hot. And then I just kind of remove layers as I go. Uh, for hats, you know, sometimes I, I I bounce around a little bit. I like to have a thick knit cap. I'm still searching for a knit stocking cap that is going to cut the wind and is not going to stretch out on me. Uh, for some reason, the ones that are comfortable, that fit tight enough to keep the wind out, uh, I don't know if it's because I need a smaller size to do that, to fit my 
small smaller than my head to get that nice tight fit but they all stretch out um it, it seems like i always I always get them stretching out on me when it's really windy sometimes uh the wind will blow through those too i'll go with the crown cap that was a, a western thing out in montana i got a couple of those they're really nice to cut the the wind on your head uh <clears throat> wind can still get in underneath the flaps on your ears so not always perfect on a windy day um, but I'll go back and forth between those gloves I'm wearing I'm wearing mitts I never ever wear gloves like fingered gloves they're just uh, I'll wear them underneath but I'll never I'll, I'll wear like a like a wool fingered glove underneath my mittens but I always have mittens to keep my hands warm hands tend to get cold and what what I do is is I'll go down to those gloves and and it never fails. I can never keep a pair of those dry. So I'll go I'll go down to the gloves and I'll be chipping ice or I'll be cutting with a chainsaw and then I'll be scooping ice out and everything. And when I actually go to make the set to get the trap set up on the poles or the bait or the snares or whatever it is, uh, I I'm all my fingers always get wet. The good thing is by that time I've worked up so much blood flow and my body heat, my body temperature is so high that I could stick my hands in that ice cold water for quite a while and and it isn't all that bad. Um, but oh, after a point, you your hands start to fingers start to ache, especially when we were getting started. I was snaring with a guy and we we're just, you know, we we're trying different things and we 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 hadn't done a lot of snare setup, so it was taking longer than expected. And, uh, yeah, your hands, you chip all your holes and you start trying to wire all those snares together. And <clears throat> your hands will get cold fast. Uh, I, I've i tried a couple of, uh, the best thing that, that I could find is just, I found some neoprene gloves that I I was using for some of that last winter. And, and that was the best thing that I could figure. It, it's still, your hands are still cold. But since you know you're going to get wet, the neoprene will still keep you a little bit warm uh, while you're wet. <clears throat> and then always have an extra pair of gloves that stays dry that you don't allow yourself to use until it's time to go back out. So for the trip out, whether it's on snowshoes, snowmobile, or just walking to the truck, you're going to have a dry pair, pair of gloves to cover your hands. That's about all I can think of for winter trapping. And I, Chris, I apologize. I, my winter trapping is probably different than yours. And you may, I'm guessing you weren't, you may not have meant what do you use for like beaver trapping through two feet of ice. So let's talk just quickly about fall beaver trapping. Uh, I have a couple of things that I use when before freeze up uh, trapping in the fall. If I can get away with it, I always try to wear uh, hip boots as opposed to chest waders. Uh, it's not always easy to be able to get away with that. If you're road trapping and you, you're you not trapping where you have a lot of deep runs that you have to set in, that works pretty good. But if you're, if you're running uh, quite a number of sets, and if you're like us in Maine, our 330 body grips have to be completely submerged by water um, or if you you know if you're making drowning sets and sometimes you got to get out in deeper water 
sometimes you're going to have to have chest waders. Uh, my so the hip boots I'm wearing like uh, just your standard green lacrosse hip boots. You can get really insulated ones, but I prefer to actually have just have the normal ones that have that they have a layer of insulation. I don't know if it's 800 grams maybe. It's not like the super like the black fireman's lacrosse boots. Those are heavy insulated. I wear the green ones that are not really flimsy, but they have some insulation in them. And they're great. I wear them all summer long. So I like it because come fall, come trapping season, I can just stick with those same boots and, and they work awesome. Uh, if it's cold, I just wear more underwear, uh, thermal layers. Uh, on you know, I'll, <clears throat> I'll wear I'll wear the wool pants. I'll wear the, the thermal underwear uh, underneath those hip boots uh, to keep warm. And that also translates to chest waders. When I gotta wear chest waders, I have a pair of Cabela's five millimeter, really thick neoprene chest waders. If you can get them to fit you, they're pretty awesome. Now, for me, I fish a lot. I get in the streams and I move a lot. I know guys that just wear boot foot chest waders. They can, they're awesome because they can slip in, a, in and out of them really quick. They're warm. They go splash out in the water a little bit. They come back out. They're done. I, I get these waders and sometimes if I'm fishing like, when I was out west, sometimes I'd be walking quite a considerable distance on a stream, half mile to a mile. We, uh, <clears throat> whether it was up or down, up and down the stream, or getting to and from access points. In some cases, where I actually was working, doing some fish research, I was walking two to three miles in the winter in those chest waders. You can't do that with a booted chest wader. You you have to have uh, what I ended up preferring was a stocking foot chest wader with uh with the boot the the wading boots um on top of those and when i finally got the right size i found out what i was i was a large tall and i tried extra large and it was a nightmare um it would get all bunched up and it would be very difficult you'd be fighting it the whole way to walk but when I found one that fit my body really good without you, you want them fairly snug. You don't want them too tight because then you have a hard time moving as well. You want them fairly snug. You don't want the crotch to be too low where you're, you're just kind of affecting movement of your legs. And you, you want, so you want the right height. You want them fairly snug and you want to get some good boots, some good wading boots on those. And you could walk all day, not have a problem. The neoprene is good for super cold weather. What I find, like in during fall trapping, like up here, I would say like in early November, we can have days where it gets it gets up, you know, 50 degrees, 60 degrees. Uh, first thing in the morning, it might be you know 25, 30 degrees, something like that. In those cases, I, I really don't want those neoprene waders. It's just going to get too hot. And <clears throat> what I have are some really lightweight chest waders. They're heavy-duty lightweight, if that makes any sense. There's no insulation in them. The ones I have are very expensive. And the reason is I bought them for, for fly fishing. 
So they are Sims. They're Sims G3 waiter. They're oh like 350 bucks I think. They're really expensive, and I did I would not buy them for for trapping. Um, <clears throat> I bought them I bought them to fish, and they work awesome for that. And since I have them, and I have you know they're stocking foot waders, and I have the I have a good pair of wading boots. Um, I'll use those when I go out trapping, and I need to walk through some really deep water and it's not full-on winter um, those are about as comfortable as you're gonna get and you can adjust you can adjust your layers your thickness of your long johns whether you sometimes you won't wear any long johns underneath them um, just your jeans and uh, they're they're super comfortable waiter uh, they're they're very adaptable and uh, and I like them but I would not recommend buying them for trapping they cost way too much money uh, you can get Cabela's versions of those that are, are cheaper. Um, they're not going to be as comfortable, but you can get by on them. Uh, probably, I mean, Cabela's and Lacrosse are probably the brands I would look to for kind of a balance between comfort and, and price. Uh, gauntlets, I, I think you mentioned gauntlets <clears throat> or gloves, rubber gloves. So I go a couple of ways. If I'm muskrat trapping, I've got some rubber gloves <clears throat> that are non-insulated and they probably go halfway up between my tip of my fingers and my elbow. So those are probably what 12 inches, 12 to 14 inches long I would say. Uh, <clears throat> those, those work awesome for muskrat trapping. I can do anything I need to do if I want to keep when I want to keep my hands dry in those gloves uh, they're pretty they're relatively thick but not insulated and I've had some in the past that are a little bit insulated and, and a little bit softer uh, pretty soft rubber but still a little bit insulation they seem to work fine as well when I'm beaver trapping and I gotta get down in the water I've got the full I get a pair of those full-on gauntlets um, I'm looking at them right now, and I gotta see the. I don't know what the brand is. It's I see it says B E M A C. I I don't know exactly the brand, but anyway, those things are they're like uh, they got kind of a white and red strap. They're attached with together with this strap that goes over your shoulder, and they're the full length of your arms. They're like a green color, greenish color, and they are insulated they're kind of a it's kind of a thin layer of insulation you gotta be careful you don't want to put them on with wet hands because then it's hard when you try to pull them off the other thing is if you get them wet a little bit and you roll them unroll them you roll them inside out to try to get them dried out uh, try not to pull the fingers all the way out just go to like to the hand and then just kinda of keep that section open to dry out but if you try to like undo the fingers and stuff, you're gonna have a hard time getting them back in the way they're supposed to be with that insulation. So uh, those work. Those work awesome. I think they're pretty standard. There, I don't know if there's a lot of different brands or types. Uh, but what I do is is I'll either go with that short, relatively short glove, or I'll go with that full-on gauntlet, and I switch back and forth uh, depending on on the situation. So yeah, you kind of need those gauntlets you, if you're gonna trap beaver in some deeper water uh, I've 
<clears throat> been in several situations where I'm really glad I had them, and I've been in places where I didn't have them and I got really cold. <laughs> so uh, if you want to say you're setting up a, a beaver lodge and you you got a lot of sets to make and you don't have a pair of gauntlets and you need to get your hands down uh, in order to make sets uh, or feel, figure out what's going on, whatever, you... It, it can it can make a pretty for a pretty miserable outing and you may make one or two sets and not be motivated to make set three or set four or set five because you just your your discomfort level and uh you you may be just say oh, i'll go i'll go back tomorrow and do that so to avoid that get that get those gauntlets with you have them with you on the line and use them and i think you'll notice that even if you have to slip them on and off which I tend to do quite a bit. Uh, I think it's worth it. So, anyway, those are the questions. And of course, as usual, I rattled on for so long on the, the first portion of the podcast that I didn't get to the book. So, what the book is, I'm going to talk about it next episode. It's a book called Carry On Stan Zaray's Journey from Boston Greaser to Alaskan Homesteader. And Stan Zaray is. One of the stars from the TV show Yukon Men uh, up in Tanana, Alaska. He's a pretty awesome guy, and this is his life story. So I'm really excited to talk about that. We'll cover it on the next episode of the Trapping Today podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Contact me, jrodwood at gmail.com, J-R-O-D-W-O-O-D at gmail.com. You're looking for a trapping lure? Try my long distance call lure. That's a, a trappingtoday.com. Check out that LDC lure. It's a great price. It's a great quality product. And my book, Fur Profit, A Trapper's Guide to the Modern Fur Market. Get it at trappingtoday.com. Get it from our friends, Cots Brothers. Support them. Thank them for supporting the podcast. Or any other trapping supply company that you frequent will have the book. Thank you again, and we will catch you on the next episode. Until then, keep on talking, trapping, thinking, trapping, getting ready for trapping season.